Hey, this is Amanda, host of Solving Water. I just wanted to note before we start the show that this episode was recorded about a week before Hurricane Laura made landfall in the Gulf Coast of the U.S. To learn how you can help those impacted by the disaster, please visit the link in the episode notes. Now the show. 2020 is making history in some unfortunate ways, including as one of the most active seasonal forecasts produced in the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA's 22-year history of hurricane outlooks. To combat this, municipalities across the country are taking extra steps to defend themselves against damaging winds, flooding, and storm surges. Enjoy the show! I'm Amanda Holloway, and on this episode of Through the Water Cycle on Xylem Solving Water Podcast, Mike Sturgill, Regional Sales Manager, and Hunter Powell, Godwin Product Manager for the Americas, share with us how hurricane seasons and response technology and solutions have changed over the past decade, including the best ways to prepare for storm events and mitigate aftermath effects. Thanks, both of you, for joining today. Hunter, welcome back to the show. I, you know, we were able to speak earlier on the Permanent Non-Clog Solutions podcast. So um, just how have you been? Good, good. The, uh, it's been an interesting year, as everyone knows, so dealing with the new normal, I guess. Can you just remind everybody uh, what you do for Xylem? Yep, so I am the um, product manager for the Godwin product line, uh, which entails the diesel-powered pumps, which are used in uh, all sorts of emergency use as well as permanent installed bypass pumps uh, and general safety water. Great. And Mike, if you can, please do the same and just introduce yourself, uh, what you do for the company, maybe some background. Yeah, no problem. My name is Mike Sturgill. I'm the regional sales manager uh, and currently the states of North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, and Texas that uh, encompasses the dewatering business direct to market. So, working with the sales staff on rental and sales solutions of the different Xylem brands we offer. So basically been with Xylem going on 11 years now. Hurricanes happen in all those areas. I'm very lucky to have those in what I cover. Uh, That's an interesting perspective. Um, And I think it's a great segue into just exactly what I want to talk to you guys about today, which is hurricane preparedness and response. And you know, I've been reading updates from NOAA as recently as last week about, you know, revised hurricane forecasts. And they're saying that there's going to be 19 to 25 named storms of which, you know, a handful or almost half will become hurricanes. And then there's going to be some major hurricanes to, to come out of that. And so they're just saying it's like on pace to be a very, very active a hurricane season. And so what, you know, how is this year stacking up to recent years past? Is the hype that they're making it, is it real? Mike, if you want to go first and answer that one since it's your, in your region. Yeah. Yes. I would say the hype is real. Um, you know, one thing is, is over the last couple of years, we've had such, I mean, geez, all the way back to 2016, it seems like we've had storms that have hit some portion of the country, you know, that have done, you know, catastrophic damage. So, I can imagine with what they're predicting now that it's real. We've already seen, you know, not only just one that went across Southern Texas, but obviously the last tropical storm that kind of, that went up through the Carolinas. And, you know, typically ever since I've done this and I was born and raised a Florida boy, we, you know, the hurricane, it tends to get hot right now through September. So I can imagine that we have a 
the hype's real and that we, you know, we're probably going to be in for an interesting uh, rest of the hurricane season. I, I, I don't doubt that. And so um, you mentioned like the typical, a typical year you born and raised in Florida, all that great stuff. Uh, what is it? Is there a, such a thing as a typical year anymore in terms of hurricane season? I feel like every year they say, this is going to be the hottest year on record. This is going to be the worst hurricane season on record. Um, so, I mean, is that even a thing where there's a typical year? My norm of typical right now seems to we get, at least after the last four or five years, we've seemed to have received at least two that have hit somewhere that have done a little bit of damage, whether a Category 1 or something as catastrophic as Hurricane Michael two years ago. You know, it seems like we've always had one or two hit any different, you know, from Category 1 to, to 3 to 4, you know, over the last four or five years. So that is my norm or what I would say I believe is typical. And and it's, I don't know, it's historical. It's been looking that way recently. So that, that's where I, I kind of brought that up from. Okay. What about this most recent storm? We kind of talked about how we're not going to say it because we don't know how <laughs> to pronounce it. But um, the most recent storm in the Atlantic uh, and what Xylem's involvement has been in the process. Yeah, so this is actually kind of a, a unique storm. You know, we were we were lucky in one way with uh, the speed of it, right? You know, it was actually moving, I think, close to 50, 60 miles an hour, uh, not just not just the, the local wind speed, but the storm itself. So um, the amount of localized damage was minimized. If you remember, um, the last big storm that came into the Carolinas, I believe it was Florence, you know, it moved in and it just stayed there, right? You know, mm -hmm. like uh, I'm in Charlotte and we were expecting it to, to, to come into Charlotte and drop a bunch of rain, but it never made it. It never left Wilmington and we launched, you know, left, you know, 30 to 40, some places 50 inches of rain because the storm just stopped. It was the same thing we saw in Houston a few years ago. So um, we did have, you know, different pockets of, of localized flooding, obviously with the, the rain and the storm surge, but like I said, again, we were we were pretty fortunate with the speed with which it moved through. So we we had some response and some pumps going rent, but they they actually came off rent um, somewhat rapidly in comparison to previous storms. And do I mean why do we think that the you know storms generally speaking seem to be you know each season seems to be getting more and more volatile? Are, are there any like factors that you can point to and what you're seeing? Well, it's it's interesting. I don't know that we're seeing. Uh, you know more more storms per se but but to mike's point we're certainly seeing more make landfall right like a lot of times you see you know a, a storms form and they and they never make it out of the water but we're seeing i mean uh, i've been in in charlotte about 15 years and uh, there's there's probably been three hurricanes that have that have made landfall in north carolina in that time span they've all probably been in the last five years Right. So it's a pretty significant change. And I'm not sure, you know, if it's ocean current changes or, or it's certainly some sort of climate change impact the, the shift of where the, the path of these storms that they're taking now. And where do you guys get your information about storms and weather events? Like, how do you kind of track that stuff? Because we were talking when I was putting together the, this episode outline and just how you feel kind of like a storm chaser in terms of like managing and monitoring like where all these weather events around the country are starting to form. And so, you know, what, what do you guys use to get your information about storms? I don't think we, we have anything much different than 
probably anyone else, you know, the NOAA website's great. You know, we're, we're constantly watching the different, you know, they're, they're so sophisticated anymore, even the Weather Channel. So I think we're probably just using those same outlets that everyone else is to, to kind of look at the storms, um, predict where we think they're going to fall. And, then, and obviously, you know, at the same time, you know, we keep an eye on them really early on. You know, we, we and, you know, either they fizzle out or, you know, this thing keeps rolling and makes a landfall. But I wouldn't say that we're using anything different than maybe the, the, the normal mainstream. It's we just probably take a little closer look at it than probably the normal because of what we do and how we have to respond and, and, and assist our cust- our customers in, 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 in reacting or being prepared. And we have some kind of internal system that signals our teams to be ready to respond, right? Is it like a coding system? Can either one of you kind of explain what that is? We have coding systems for tracking, uh, mm-hmm. you know, once, you know, once the storm is ongoing for tracking, you know, what assets we've deployed um, and, and, you know, kind of capturing our response as it happens. Um, I think that that might be what you're referring to. So, you know, that's just, we use different, you know, what we call project codes based on different storms to kind of indicate where we've supplied, you know, and deployed assets throughout the, throughout the storm. And, and that enables us to, you know, after the storm to also, you know, as we're tracking other storms to reach out to those customers that we assisted prior, if they're in, whether the cone of uncertainty or, you know, they're in direct, you know, landfall to, you know, try to help them be prepared too. So, you know, it's, it actually becomes a great tool for us for future stuff. So what, Mike, we'll start with you. What's been one of the most uh, challenging weather response events you've been involved in in your career? I'll be honest, last year responding to Dorian was probably one of the toughest because of where it where it hit and where it did it, where it was so the catastrophic damage over in the Bahamas. And it, that was, you know, just overall was very tough. Um, it's different from being in the mainland U.S. No matter how catastrophic from the Harveys to the, you know, the Michaels to the Andrews keep going back, you know, just being able to maneuver and get to places in Dorian was, was tough. Okay. And so what was your specific role in that? Did just, I mean, sounds like you were on site and were you just deploying product and solutions or? Yes, we were, we were basically trying to help them get clean drinking water. You know, that storm really devastated the, the islands that you see and hear about the Abacos and Grand Bahama, but it really were, it wasn't as much flooding as just getting drinking water back and going um, for them. So we were there on site trying to help them figure out the best ways to get their drinking wells back to working and getting the salinity out of the, the wells so that they could use the water for, you know, to be able to whether cook with, drink with, you know, just, just those things. So that was the biggest part of our response for that. What about you, Hunter? Uh, well, probably a similar experience. I mean, we, we did a lot of work with, with Harvey, obviously in Houston due to the flooding, but um, I was in um, Puerto Rico shortly after Maria and, um, you know, dealing with that, the same kind of thing, trying to get, uh, we were setting up drinking water towers, drinking water stations, um, just trying to get, um, you know, anything, anything to the local people. You know, we had um, a local village where they had actually set up a camp um, where they were cooking meals um, for anyone in the community that, that needed meals, but they had no, they had no clean drinking water. They were, they were, um, cooking with um, five gallon buckets with little camp filters on the end of them. Um, so we were 
setting up um, a, a drinking water tower that would provide clean drinking water so they could keep, you know, providing food. Uh, but, you know, the destruction that when you have such a, you know, on an island, there's, there's really nowhere to hide, you know, you, you know, you, you look at, again, Harvey and Houston and, the, and yeah, there was a lot of damage and there's tremendous amount of flooding, but you, you can kind of get away from it a little bit, right? You can move further inland, you had options. But when you get into those, those, those island communities, there's, there, there's, there's nowhere to go, really. That's interesting. And the other thing I think is interesting about what you both said is, you know, I, my brain right away when I think of hurricane response goes to dewatering from storm surge and other flooding issues. Um, but you both talked about supplying drinking water in the aftermath of these events. So is there, I mean, is that typical? Is there a percentage of dewatering that you do versus drinking water? Or is it just really, it just really individual depending on the storm? It's, it's going to depend on the storm. I mean, you know, the dewatering is tough because it depends on the location, right? So if you think about, we had a lot of flooding from a storm maybe four or five years ago in Columbia, South Carolina. Well, Columbia, South Carolina, if you don't know, is essentially a bowl. So there's nowhere for the water to go. So it all has to be dewatered. It all has to be pumped out. Um, when you're dealing with some of these coastal towns um, outside of, of localized areas, there's not a lot you can do dewatering wise. You kind of, because there's nowhere to pump the water because the ocean has risen, you know, four feet. So there's only so much pumping and dewatering you can do until that recedes. Um, but in pretty much any storm that I've dealt with, uh, on the backside, there's going to be, you know, supply and drinking water issues to, to address once, once you get past the immediate shock of what's happened. Mike, what were you going to say? Sorry, I cut you off. <laughs> That's okay. I was just going to say, yeah, it's, it's really dependent on storms. I think that the drinking water for Hunter and my example was, you know, just going into the island. And that's what was number one, where obviously mainland United States, they, they find a way and they mobilize a lot, of, you know, to get things done. And then on top of that, we do a lot of stuff after the storm from the devastation of maybe the infrastructure. And, and, and we, we set up uh, pumps, not for dewatering, but just to, you know, keep, you know, lift stations going and wastewater treatment plants to keep that process flowing. If there's major destruction that happens after the fact of a storm and it may not be flooding related, it, you know, down trees, down just different things that can happen there too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're, we'll get into COVID in a little bit here because I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts about how that's sort of impacted um, some of this response efforts. But, you know, like I mentioned earlier, Hunter was on a previous podcast about non-clogged solutions and I got to believe debris and damage caused by storm events, um, can be really tough on, you know, water treatment plants and uh, all that filtration and moving the water through. Well, yep, and you've got you've got all these pump stations that no one thinks about throughout the, you know, throughout every municipality and area. And you know, if you again, if you just think about Harvey, you have you know control panels that are that are just not designed to be wet that are completely underwater, and so now you you're not talking about an off the shelf product. You're talking about, you know, you look at one pump station, well, that's down in a minimum of probably six to eight weeks, but now that's under normal conditions. So you take something that, okay, I need to replace this. Well, I've got 400 of these that are in the same condition, right? So uh, that's, that's really where you get, you know, some of the, some of the longest term work we did after Sandy was a wastewater treatment plant. 
that had had some significant flooding and power issues, as Mike touched on. Uh, we had to supply pumps, I think, for 18 to 24 months after the storm just to keep that plant operational. To hear more discussions about challenges and trends in today's water industry, tune in to our other shows on Solving Water, a Xylem podcast, including In the Field with Gould's Water Technology about issues impacting the residential and agricultural markets, Through the Water Cycle, a series reviewing every aspect of the water utilities segment from treatment to monitoring and reuse, and the Bell & Gossip podcast focused on HVAC and plumbing systems for commercial building services. Stream, download, and subscribe for these episodes and more. So sort of shifting gears, but not totally. Um, What about other weather events that you guys deal with on a regular basis? Um, I know that there was that recent straight line windstorm that had like hurricane force winds that went through Iowa. And I think they declared a state of emergency there. Um, I mean, is you know, what are, do you see stuff like this very often or what other types of weather events are on your radar outside of hurricanes? Yeah. So yeah, we do, we see actually, I'd say quite a few different weather events from, you know, flooding, uh, river flooding. That's obviously been a big, not this year, the year before was huge in the, well, we, the central part of the United States. Um, so we've had, you know, the river flooding, um, you know, we also have just your, you know, you live in the southeast, just storms. I mean, these crazy thunderstorms that come through or tornadoes. I mean, those are all weather events that can do damage to where we can be called into action. Um, so I think, you know, between some of the river flooding and, and cresting, especially in the big rivers, that, you know, there's there's a lot of opportunity for us to go respond and and, and, and help uh, those, those local customers. Yeah. Another one that's not top of mind when people think of pumping is, is drought. Right. We, you know, we do a lot of drought related work because, um, you know, be it something, uh, you know, your, a drinking water plant's going to have some type of intake structure in a lake or a river. Well, if you've had significant drought where that intake structure is out of the water, you need to find a way to supply water to that plant. Um, you know, when I when I first started about uh, 14 years ago, we were in a pretty major drought, 2009, 2008, 2009 did significant, significant amount of pumping, keeping a lot of small towns along these rivers with water be- because all of the, the, the river levels had, had, had come far, so far down. Um, and we see, see a lot of that out west too with the different reservoirs and things. Yeah, that's definitely something I don't think about very often in terms of like a, a natural disaster. So that's really interesting. Okay, so municipalities and water utilities they have these weather events, whether they're this extremely rare straight line windstorm through the Midwest to the typical hurricane. And what, what can water utilities and municipalities do about this? And so I thought we could start by talking a little bit about contingency planning, like what it is, um, why it's so important, and um, what constitutes a really good plan. Sure. Uh, yeah, contingency plans—they're great. You know, you can—it's it's something that you can you can hopefully tackle when when you've got a little bit of downtime. Obviously, I say that lightly, but when you're not dealing with an immediate emergency, um, so it's a it's a, a package that you're going to put together that's going to outline everything you need to keep um, whatever it is—water plant, treatment plant, pump station, 
um, command center. You know, it's not just for water, but you focus on water, whatever you're going to need to keep that operational with some type of catastrophic event, be a pump failure, um, a water main break, whatever it may be, um, mm -hmm. outline that plan to keep that system operational. And make sure you have um, not only just um, a list of, of um, items or equipment that you're going to need, but also who you're going to contact, you know, where that equipment is going to come from and what kind of support you're going to have to get it up and running. What do you think, Mike? Any, uh, anything to add or did Hunter pretty much cover it? Well, he did that the last podcast about the, the dry prime backup system. So I think he's got the contingency planning down pretty good. So <laughs> no, I think he, he get, covered that real well. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about this backup power a little bit because I also recently listened to a webinar uh, that Pete Snow did re regarding um, sewer bypass systems and utilities have options for, for backup power, right? Electric versus diesel powered. Um, can we just maybe, I don't know which one of you wants to take this, maybe Mike, since Hunter just answered the last question, but talk a little bit about um, the benefits of having both of those options and when you might, you know, choose one over the other. Yeah, I think you're referring to, uh, you know, that, that the dry prime backup system, which we, we call the ultimate contingency plan. And, you know, that's, you know, you have the contingency plans that Hunter spoke of that, you know, we, we route through our rental side when to have the customer repair before the storm. But we also have these permanent installs that, especially at the lift station inside the suit, you know, the sewer collection system that you can have a permanent pump there that, you know, is diesel powered and, and, and works, you know, basically on its own remotely to make sure that, that, you know, you don't have, you know, overflows or if there's a power failure at the lift station, that pump is, is, is basically working on its own diesel power that can make sure that you're not having uh, any type of spill, even during storms or during normal, you know, whether that's a hurricane storm or it's a wind storm or any of these different other weather events we talked about. So it's really the ultimate contingency plan for the, uh, for the owners to keep their systems, their collection systems from having overflows. I think that's a good point. Then it just raises a question for me is, and you know, how do you know when to choose a temporary system versus a permanent one? And I know that some of that has to do with the type of response and support needed on site. But, you know, if I, if I live in a coastal town that gets hammered by storms pretty often, wouldn't it just make sense for me to put in a permanent solution or are there benefits to just, you know, having a temporary system in place. So uh, that, that's kind of an interesting point because it's something that, that um, Mike told me, you know, a long time ago we were dealing with um, in Florida has a lot of these uh, permanent installed diesel pumps in place of generators. And one of the counties that, that was one of the kind of early adopters, they had paid to have generators on site at their pump station. So they were permanently installing generators. So they had, you know, backup power. But then every time there was a hurricane, they were then renting a pump. So it finally dawned on someone, well, why am I paying all this money? You know, for the same cost of a generator, you can buy a pump. So why am I paying all this money for a generator when every time there's a storm, I still have to go rent a pump? So, you know, they kind of started making that switch and in installing pumps now. Um, 
So it really depends, you know, depending on the size of the station, there are regulations that state, okay, if you have a certain size station, you have to have a backup of some kind. And in that situation, well, you know, that's where we're going to recommend, you know, and probably 95% of installations, you can use a pump instead of a generator. And it's going to give you a lot more redundancy and reliability than a generator will. Now, some of the smaller stations, it really gets into kind of a cost-benefit analysis for how often you're running that station, how quickly can you respond. If there is an emergency, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into, you know, what's the nearest uh, location that I'm going to have to pull the rental pump from. You know, those type of are, are all become factors when you start looking at, you know, hopefully at a minimum you have those contingency plans to see where, you know, if, if my nearest place that I'm going to pull a pump from is two, three hours away, that's, you know, you might need to really start thinking about having one on site. Sure. And you mentioned earlier, I think Mike mentioned that, you know, some of these systems will stay online. These temporary systems can stay online post storm, you know, 18 to 24 months. I mean, is there a, ever a threshold from a timing standpoint where you'd want to be like, okay, you need something more permanent in place here versus just uh relying on temporary systems i think that typically what will happen on that end is it, it you know if it goes that long then typically that owner will look to say hey we really need to make this a more permanent you know decision um obviously it comes down to different funding especially you know after storms there's different funding they can receive and so i think it's all just really dependent on that but I mean, we've had some to Hunter's point that have been out there for years and that's what they chose to do. And it's probably from a funding perspective. And then, you know, we've had some where we have a coastal town that every year for the last four years has ran all these pumps and this year they bought them all and they're permanently installed them, but it took them four years to get that far. So it's probably coming down to a funding and, and, and how they use that at the, at each different local level. Um, so I would say that's probably where it would start. Sure. Yeah. And that's a good, too far into details, but a lot of that decision comes into CapEx versus OpEx, you know, different budgets, you know, the, they're able to continue. Typically the, the operating budget doesn't get slashed or the capital budget will. And that's where a lot of that decision-making comes into like to Mike's point, maybe it took four years of submitting that budget to purchase those pumps before they were ever able to get that money approved. Um, sure. So how is Xylem in the industry overall, basically advancing technology solutions, service response to uh, help utilities and municipalities deal with sort of these changing dynamics? So I mean, if, you, if you look at the technology front, there's a lot of different options. Um, you know, one in regards to the diesel pumps is, 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 a, is a modem package that, that we can install on the pumps. So that's, it's, it's actually a cellular satellite-based modem that's going to give the user the ability to remotely operate the pump, which is really good because they can, they can deploy the asset uh, in the face of a storm and then can, can withdraw to a safe location and still operate that pump. You know, so there's, there's different um, technological avenues there that will, uh, I don't want to say replace people, but give you the ability to um, better utilize your manpower. What about you, Mike? What do you think is uh, one of the, you know, best advancements that we've got in terms of supporting this disaster response? Mine's going to kind of be old school because it seems simple and we just talked about it, but the drive prime backup system, I mean, 
basically what Hunter just discussed, that, that technology can be in, uh, implemented on those. But, you know, when you look at the just sheer number of lift stations, you know, just to, let's look at the coastal towns on the southeast or even, you know, if you go into, you know, the Ohio, the, geez, Ohio, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, and Texas, where, you know, all those seem to be really affected, especially by hurricanes, but just thunderstorms, just whatever you want to say. It's, you know, just getting that permanent, that ultimate contingency plan. And it's, you know, we, we've done a very good job of implementing them and, and people have seen the value in them and the owners and they bought them, but there's still so much work to do. I mean, but to me, that, that simple old school solution, I say old school, it's maybe 25 years old, but we still, I think that's the best way to really combat, you know, especially, you know, if it's sewage, you know, getting that on the ground or uh, in, in any type of weather event. And, and so to, you know, Hunter's point that, you know, the stuff he just spoke about can be implemented on that. So it really makes it, you know, a standalone solution that you don't have to rely if anything happens. I think that's interesting because um, I was talking to uh, some engineers that were uh, with the, the sewage authority in Hoboken, New Jersey last year. And they were talking about, you know, they had just put a lift station online with one of our flight pumps um, right before Sandy hit. And it was just like, he, he had to like stay in the pump station or the lift station overnight for like two days or something like that. So, and it's just interesting to me, you know, anything that we can do to help keep people safe and protect employees. Um, and sounds like, you know, having the dry prime, but then also including this, uh, this modem package would be, you know, doing that safety piece of it. No, I, I just wanted to reiterate the safety piece of what you said. I mean, that's, a, that's a really a huge factor is, you know, when we talk about any weather event, also being able to keep those people that are directly in line safe. And and this, these solutions can do that. You know, just don't want to lose. Yeah, I think that was a great point. Um, so, Mike, I'll just I'll start with you then on this. I said earlier that I was going to uh, talk about COVID-19 and just ask you, you know, if there's been any impacts to hurricane preparedness and response with with this pandemic yes actually um this is the first year where we've had you know we, we sometimes have hurricane packages of pumps that during the season customers will purchase to keep pumps you know reserved for them um and this year was the first time in a long time we had a lot of customers that didn't do that because of the funding whether you know they were a municipality or a plant um so that was I mean, like I said, that was really eye-opening. You know, at the same time, we have some customers that, you know, typically after the first storm comes through, you know, they just keep them for the season to be safe uh, for anything else. And, you know, to Hunter's point, the last one that came through was pretty much everyone, as soon as they were done with these pumps, it was time to get rid of them. And I, I think a lot, most of that does go back to the COVID-19 and, you know, so many, whether it's, you know, a municipality or it's a, you know, a plant or just so much funding has been, you know, put towards COVID that now it's just strictly emergency when they, they, they come to us during a weather event and they're not, they're not taking those extra steps to be prepared. So that's, it's been noticeable this year already. The funding is an interesting point because what I think a lot of people don't realize is while, you know, people are home, um, so you've seen, you know, a, a significant uptick in kind of residential sewer billing, um, but in the majority of municipalities, you know, 
residential water and sewer is essentially subsidized by business in the area, right? So um, like if you think about the small town of Greenville, South Carolina, there's a BMW plant. That BMW plant uses more water than the whole town could ever hope to use on their own. So when, when they put these stay-at-home orders and close that business, the, the amount of revenue that's being lost because that BMW plant is not functioning, forget about maybe the restaurants not being open and all of that, that's the huge piece of the revenue that these water utilities, you know, they're estimating shortfalls of like $12 billion for the water segment over next year because of these um, commercial and business water users that haven't been using water for the past three months. You know, that is really interesting to me because when we were talking about COVID earlier in the year on some of our previous episodes, talking a lot about the utilities themselves not being able to keep employees on site because of safer at home, but also because of just COVID safety reasons, just reduced staff. So you would, you'd almost think that they would want to keep those backup or pumps or they'd want to keep those things in place in case they can't have a physical person there, you know, with the, with the technology connected so that they can be doing all this remotely. No, I was going to say another thing is too, is even with Hunter's mention of like a manufacturing plant, a lot of coastal towns that are big on tourism, that's where a lot of these municipalities get their money and their funding as well. And obviously that, that whole industry is taking a hit. So like I was saying earlier, our whole southeast coast of Florida, you know, is, is almost all strictly tourism. So when, you know, they have been just struggling. So, it, you know, COVID's affected manufacturing to tourism to, and that's ultimately affected, you know, you know the municipalities with their water plants or wastewater plants. Hunter, did you have something to add to that? Well, well, not that specifically, but I was just, you mentioned, you know, the people doing working more remote, you know, so the, the, the towns are, um, you know, they're doing what they can. I mean, I know, um, you know, here locally, they were, they were working rotational shifts. So if you needed, um, you know, a water tap installed for maybe a new home or something, you know, if, if, if you didn't catch the week, right, then they weren't going to be able to do it for a week, you know, so there's, there's, there's revenue gaps and there's also personnel gaps where they don't, they, they have a much, leaner staff working, you know, they've got fixed people to kind of respond to hotspots, but their normal stuff with it, they're doing, they don't have the personnel to your point. You think there's going to be a lot of residual um, impact that may be around for a long time? I mean, I I know you talked about the shortfall for the water industry, Hunter, um, from a financial standpoint going into next year, but, you know, is there anything else you're seeing as being sort of permanent changes as a result? I don't know about necessarily permanent changes, but what I can speak to, um, you know, being involved in the water segment in the, the last kind of major recession or depression, whatever you want to call it, 2008, 9, 10, um, is to Mike's point, preventative maintenance kind of goes to the window. So where uh, they may have been pulling pumps to work on them, you know, every three months to make sure they're operational, they don't have that funding. So what ends up happening is, is there's, there's kind of a lull in spending for maybe 12 to 14 months, and then it becomes catastrophic, right? So if you think about you've got a car and you can't afford to change the oil anymore, right? So you just drive it until there's no oil left and the engine seizes up. Well, now you have to buy a new car. Or now you have to buy a new engine. So that's, 
kind of what I anticipate seeing happening probably in the next, you know, 12 to 14 months is these budgets is they, they literally can't afford to fix things. And so they just kind of spit and glue things back together to keep them operational until it's just catastrophic. What's your view on it, Mike? I'm in agreement with Hunter on that. And I think that's, you know, or on our side of the business island, we're going to see a lot more rental because of they are just basically emergency response. They're not doing the money's not there to go ahead and do the rehabs and do the items that need to be addressed or, and that's just new work or maybe some work they had in the, you know, in the future outside of just the actual maintenance side of it. So I think we're going to, you know, it's going to, I mean, I think it's going to affect us for some years to come and that, and that's just out, not even just maintenance. It's just in general new rehabilitation projects and stuff, because really I think everyone's still trying to, you know, navigate this and what's, you know, what's going to happen as we keep going through, the COVID-19 and, and when does it end? Right. Exactly. So what do you, what are, what do you see as the future of disaster response and preparedness? Just taking into consideration all these factors we talked about today from, you know, powerful storms and, and climate change potentially impacting that to um, COVID-19. What, what's the future of the response that we could have for this? I think we're going to see a lot more going back to that permanent install. I know, you know, it's going to go to funding, but you know, if you don't have the people in place to be able to react, you got to find another way. So, you know, I think some of this permanent install and, you know, is really going to be the wave of the future. And I think we learned that with COVID the hunter's point earlier, you had people working different shifts. You had some municipalities, only one person in a truck or rotating it. So, you know, as these, or they, some people are working from home. I think as we got to go to that permanent solution, you know, more, just more in general. And and that way we can, you can eliminate the need to have response from people if they're not there, because I think that's the biggest thing they found through the whole COVID situation when, you know, who we've dealt with is that people aspect and you couldn't just, you just didn't have that resource of people to react. Yeah, I would agree with Mike. I think, um, if you if you look at at the at the, at the history of anything in in our, in our country, we've we've not tech, tech, typically um, rolled back legislation, and it's just gotten more and more strict on uh, sewer spills and incidents and things along those lines. And because there's a hurricane coming through, is is not going to be an acceptable excuse anymore, right? So it's just going to be that there's technology out there, there's ways to prevent this. You know, there's more towns that are doing that, and you know, the funding is going to be an issue where that's going to come from, be it, you know, some sort of government grant or something, but there's going to be more and more push for things to have to keep operational regardless of outside circumstances, especially as this becomes more common, right? You know, when it's uh, a once every 10 years, a hurricane comes through or it's a, it's a hundred year storm, you know, event, but we're having hundred year storm events every three years now, every other year, right? So, it technically it's a hundred year storm, but when that event becomes more cyclical or commonplace, they're not going to take those excuses anymore. And it's going to be expected that, no, that's what you have to design for now. And that's what you have to anticipate. That's a really great point. Anything I missed in uh, our conversation today that you want to add before I close up? Yeah, no, I think it was very well done. And, you know, I mean, hopefully it is not a very big hurricane season and active, but, it doesn't seem to be that case anymore to Hunter's point about the hundred year storms that are happening more, more frequently. 
Right. Let's yeah, just hope Noah's wrong. Currently, two storms tracking for the the Gulf the Gulf right now. <laughs> they're not named storms yet, but they're both tracking uh, right into that Texas Louisiana area. So, Mike Hunter, thank you both for giving us some great insights today, and thanks to all our listeners for tuning into Solving Water. For more information about contingency planning to build resilience and weather event response solutions from Xylem, click the link in the show notes. You can also send feedback, episode ideas, and requests to be interviewed to amanda.holloway at xyleminc.com. The Solving Water Podcast is produced and distributed by Xylem, a global water technology company of more than 16,000 employees committed to solving critical water and infrastructure challenges worldwide. Stream, download, and subscribe 